You could be very right-wing and write good science fiction. You could be very left-wing and write good science fiction. All science fiction is kind of a threat to conformity. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In today's episode, Dr. Bradley J. Berzer, Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and Professor of History at Hillsdale College, joins the program to discuss his new book, Mythic Realms, The Moral Imagination in Literature and Film, with Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. How does Mythic Realms extend the author's prior work on Christian humanism? What is the role of the moral imagination in navigating popular culture? What do the pulps have to do with romanticism? How did the Inklings seek to promote Christian humanism through genre fiction? And how can the moral imagination be employed to answer life's biggest questions and deepen religious faith? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Brad Berzer, Russell Amos Kirk Chair and Professor of History at Hillsdale College. He is the author of books on J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, Russell Kirk, Christopher Dawson, and Neil Peart, among many others. He is the author of Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West, published by Angelico Press. And today, we'll be discussing his latest book, Mythic Realms, The Moral Imagination in Literature and Film, also published by Angelico Press. Brad, welcome to Act in Line, and thanks for being with us. Dan, I love seeing you in any context, so this is great. I'm really glad we're able to talk. Absolutely. No, it's wonderful to see you again as well. Now, this book is primarily a collection of book and film criticism, but there's also a lot of, a lot other th- of other things going on here. How did you initially conceive of this project, and what were you hoping to accomplish by bringing together this collection? So a, a lot of these are pieces of kind of my deep dives into popular culture, and there's some stuff that's not popular culture, like Willa Cather and other things. But I, I've been writing now for the imaginative conservative for 13 years. And that means that I, I've and I've been doing it weekly. So I've produced something like 700 articles for the imaginative conservative over 13 years. We're celebrating our 13th birthday in July. Oh, congratulations. Uh, so it, it's been, it's been a great ride and I've enjoyed it, but I, I can't, you know, as much as I love writing on Kirk or Nisbet or Leo Strauss, uh, I need breaks from that every once in a while too. 
And one of the things that I think conservatives especially have been kind of weak on in the last several decades is popular culture. And, and especially since Alan Bloom with the closing of the American mind, I think there's been a kind of almost knee-jerk reaction on the part of conservatives against popular culture. Libertarians like Nick Gillespie and others, I think, are a little bit more open about popular culture, but conservatives have been very standoffish. And so part of the reason that I wanted to do what I did was simply to kind of demonstrate that there are serious strains of thought within popular culture, that you can have someone like a Christopher Nolan, who's working in the, the medium of cinema, who's doing really amazing things. And, and of course, you know, Dylan at Acton is, is writing on similar themes as well with Stranger Things and others. So there are others doing this, but I wrote Beyond Tenebrae, back in 2019, and it was kind of my collection also of, of essays, mostly from the imaginative conservative, of uh, Christian humanist ideas and little biographical pieces. And so here we are four years later, and I, I wanted a sequel to that book, but I didn't want it to be the same thing. So part of the reason that I made a sequel the way I did was just to kind of take this deep dive into popular culture and put some of those articles together. So again, I've got things, everything from, say, John Ford's Stagecoach to Alfred Hitchcock's Rope to Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. So, uh, yeah, I, I was running the whole gamut and really trying to show those Christian, Christian humanist themes that run through popular culture. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the very interesting. There's a lot of similar threads in both books, but they're very different books. Um, in Beyond Tenebre, you sought to sort of define Christian humanism through looking at the lives of these major figures um, and exploring their thought. In Mythic Realms, however, you you sort of deploy the moral imagination yourself, which is something you find throughout these figures, um, and in reflecting on literature and film through your own sort of personal lens, it's a more sort of practical exercise. It's more of an exercise of, 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 of Brad Berzer, the man, rather than Brad Berzer, the historian, Brad Berzer, the Christian humanist himself, bringing to bear his perspective on sort of modern culture and happenings. Um, most of these things featured in this book, I think maybe all of them are 20th century and all in 21st century uh, pieces of art, literature, and film. Um, in thinking of yourself as a Christian humanist, what, how do you deploy that perspective? I mean, sure. you've, you've studied this in the thought of others, and this is really, I think, in a lot of ways more personal. I mean, of course, you're personally interested in the, in the, in the figures, right. but this is sort of like, you know, you're building. On, this is part of a constructive project, and you're bringing that uh, engaging in contemporary culture in your own unique way. Oh, thanks, Dan. I'll take that as a huge compliment. I mean, that is that is exactly what I was trying to do. And you know, part of what I was getting at a moment ago is as much as I love writing on the deepest thoughts of conservatism, every once in a while, I, I, I do want to be just Brad. And, yeah. and not be a voice for Russell Kirk, but actually yeah, have my own voice on that. And so that's part of what I was doing. And really in everything that I was looking at, again, 
whether it was Willa Cather or John Ford or Frank Miller or Alan Moore, I was really trying to find the kind of threads there that, you know, we, Dan, you and I would have covered in Western Heritage yeah. or we were covered in, in core courses at Hillsdale. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out what's the voice of the human person. I'm still, that that's really what I'm trying to do in all of this is kind of find that, that common humanism that we see running throughout the best of popular culture. So there are a couple of threads in this book and you've touched on a couple of them already, but I want to, I want to ask you about one you introduced right in the beginning, right at the introduction, you open with a very provocative definition from Russell Kirk. Um, and he says, images are representations of mysteries necessarily. For mere words are tools which break in the hand, and it has not pleased God that man should be saved by logic, abstract reason alone. What role does this notion of images and the moral imagination play in your own criticism as you turn to these works, both you know popular and canonical? Yeah, so it, it's a great question, Dan, and it's, it's a hard one to answer. And I, I do really appreciate what Kirk was trying to get at. And by the way, that was from a 1977 speech he gave at Hillsdale, uh, that, that idea of what image is. And he gets into Plato and other things. It's a really beautiful essay. I mean, it's gorgeous, actually. I think it's one of Kirk's best. But one of the things that I find very interesting is that when we look at Protestantism, we almost always associate it with the book. We associate it with the, the, the written and the printed idea. But when we think of orthodoxy, that is Eastern Orthodoxy, or we think about Catholicism, we're always thinking about images in and of themselves or, or something to titillate the senses. So the smells and bells that we might have in mass and that's a very different way of approaching reality. One, through the printed written word, which of course we've only been able to do since Gutenberg's press. And the other, which we've done timeless immemorial, the idea that we live through our senses. So one of the things that I love about film, especially when film is done well, and when film is done well, I think it's an extraordinary art form. But I think this is equally true of, of graphic novels or of comic books. Part of what modern art tries to do is it tries to bridge the word and the image itself. And it, you see that it's in T.S. Eliot's poetry, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of imagism, you know, trying to bridge these things. And I, I think that's what a real Christian humanism tries to do. It tries to basically storyboard. It tries to give us the story itself, not just through the written word, but through our image as well. And that, again, that's what I appreciate so much in much of modern art. Now, I didn't follow that completely because obviously I've got some books in there, novels that are strictly in the printed form. But I, I kind of wanted to run the gamut of Protestantism to Catholicism to Eastern Orthodoxy in ways of approaching art. Yeah, I mean, this this is a sensibility that I think you you identify in the book as 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 a sort of self consciously romantic sensibility, not in the narrow sense of like a romance novel, but in right. this like robust sense of of the romantic movement. And there's a great. Um, you draw upon Christopher Dawson for this, and mm -hmm. he has um, a startling quote, which I've I've marked in the book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna search through these these footnotes to find it, where Dawson talks about 
romanticism in a way saving Western civilization. And there's a lot of folks in the modern American conservative movement that would react instinctively against romanticism. Oh, and, yeah. And to find that in Dawson is is sort of striking in that if, if, if you're used to the normal way that this gets tossed around in the American conservative movement. How does romanticism fit into that Christian human humanist sensibility? You've talked about this, you know, bringing this incarnational back, but how does the, the the movement itself sort of figure in? And why does somebody like Dawson look at romanticism and see, you know, not not totally uncritically, but see something really vital there that he thinks uh, Christians uh, should draw upon? Yeah, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm happy to share that article with you or any of your listeners, Dan, that oh, piece from Christopher Dawson. That's an excellent piece on his view of romanticism. It's from the 1930s. I think 1936, if I remember properly, but I've got that. And I'd be happy to share that with you. You know, it's interesting. And I brought up Hillsdale a couple of times. And of course, you and I have the common background there. Yeah. But you know, even at Hillsdale among the faculty, uh, if you look at those who embrace romanticism, like Dr. Dwight Lindley or Dr. Matt Gaetano, uh, they're they're very much in favor of this romantic notion of the world. But then you have someone like Dr. Paul Marino, who's absolutely against it and really sees it as the beginning of the end of society, this romantic view. Dawson's view was deeply Catholic about this. His idea of romanticism was much more in the kind of Chestertonian vein of romanticism and really saw the saints in particular as great romantic figures. You know, these people who don't live for themselves, they live for Christ, but we identify them because they have this unique individual perspective on Christ. The saints are not obliterated by being Christian. They're actually made more themselves. So you know, think about someone like St. John. St. John is not made less because he writes the gospel. He actually becomes more because he writes the gospel. He's more John than he was because of the grace of God. God's grace doesn't conform us. It makes us individual. That's the kind of romantic feeling that Dawson had about this, that he becomes the best Christopher Dawson he can be with grace, that grace is what leavens us overall. So again, you, know, you think about someone like a saint, a saint who's a particular representation of a universal truth. That That's the kind of thing that Dawson was getting at. You know, and I, I love your question, Dan, because clearly within conservatism, there's a divide on this. So you see someone like Irving Babbitt, who's one of my favorite scholars of the 20th century, but wrote book after book after book against the idea of romanticism. And for him, romanticism was the craziness of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it wasn't the quality of Edmund Burke or of Wordsworth, but the insanity of Rousseau. And I, I think that's, you know, when you look at someone like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien or Charles Williams, they're looking back to Burke. People like Babbitt are looking back to Rousseau. Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a way that we, we sometimes, you know, the, the, the phrase now, that gets thrown around to sort of devalue and dismiss this sort of individualism is the idea that, you know, it's this, it's this uh, expressive individualism, but there's right. also a sense in, you know, there's a sense in which that can be narcissistic, that can be pathological, all of those things. Oh, absolutely. 
But there's also a real sense in which, you know, what, you know, our ideal place in God's economy is not conformity, that we are all born into particular times, places, circumstances, contexts, to do something that's uniquely ours, to be God in the world in a particular way that's that's going to look different and that's going to be in some sense individual. Um, Absolutely, Dan. I mean, and, and again, think about when you and I get together. I mean, one of the very first things we do, we'll talk about what's going on at my institution, at your institution, but then we start diving deep into, well, what's going on with you, Dan, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, it's, I love knowing your context, yeah. but I want to know you outside of your context as well. Right. And I think that's part of what roman- a, a proper romanticism does. Yeah. So there's there's a great tie in here, and you and you make it when you when you talk about you know how romanticism sort of saturates the bookstores in the in the present day, mm, right? Um, because a lot of the individual books, authors, directors, films that you look at, they're from very popular genres like science fiction, fantasy, western, horrors, horror, superheroes. Is genre fiction uniquely conductive to sort of this, this, these, uh, to the moral imagination? Or is that something that it's just, that's where it, where, where we see it today. That's where it's really allowed to flourish in a unique way in our, in our, in our present day. Yeah, I, I really only have my opinion on this, Dan. I'm not sure how objective I would be. I, I'm a huge fan of science fiction, and I have been ever since I was a, a little kid. And one of the things that's always attracted me to science fiction is it's almost an anti-genre as opposed to being a genre. That is, a, you could be very right-wing and write good science fiction. You could be very left-wing and write good science fiction. All science fiction is kind of a threat to conformity because science fiction, it may deal with conformity. It may show the horrors of conformity, but you think about the way science fiction goes about this as a genre, it's so deeply involved in the imagination. And and we judge good science fiction, whether it's Huxley or Chesterton or Orwell or Lewis, we judge it by how imaginative it actually is. And we give credence to the more imaginative literature. And, you know, when someone's just writing formula, it's it's obvious. It's very obvious. But what's so good about, even when you have dystopian literature, like Chesterton with Napoleon at Notting Hill, or you have Brave New World with Huxley, or 1984 Animal Farm with Orwell, there's such an expression of individual imagination in all of that against conformity that I think science fiction as a genre really has been deeply, deeply anti-conformist from its very beginnings. And, and you can find it, of course, it goes all the way back to Plato's Republic yeah. to have a science fiction understanding. And then it's hit and miss. You know, you've got Erasmus and Utopia, and then you have to jump really to Mark Twain with Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. But it's still, there's a line, and then it just explodes in the 20th century. And from that, you really get the genres of horror, and you get the genre of fantasy. Uh, All of those really spring from that great moment of science fiction. And and Dan, I get into this in that one chapter on the pulps in in my book. And that was a fun chapter to write. I really enjoyed doing that. But part of this is 
in the early 20th century, in order to be in legitimate publishing, and for those who are just listening to this, I'm putting scare quotes around legitimate publishing, you basically had to come out of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. And so, so much pulp was done by Jews and Catholics who were ostracized by mainstream culture. And it's not not surprising that you find that not only in science fiction, where you have so many Jews and Catholics involved in science fiction, but you have it in Hollywood as well. You think about some of the greatest actors in Hollywood history are Catholic, and some of the greatest directors and movie owners are Jews. And in large part, that comes out of that socioeconomic dynamic of the early 20th century, where there were certain forms of art that were acceptable for these people and certain forms that weren't. So I, I'm fascinated by that as well. Yeah, you get you get a greater diversity of, of the backgrounds of authors themselves um, and this sort of... Um, you know, there's there's an axe to grind against the conformity, and there's oh, there's a absolutely. there's a great uh, there's a great piece in here where you you talk about an early volume on science fiction, science fiction at the University of Chicago is is mm-hmm. the chapter in this book, and it's it's a fascinating dialogue by some of the leading leading figures of science fiction that day. Could you unpack a little bit of that for us? Because I think that I think that gets at this question really well. Yeah, that that was also a fun chapter to write, and and I like the book that it came from. I'm I'm forgetting the title right now of what that was called, but it was a symposium that was held in the 1950s, and I I don't find it surprising. It was at the University of Chicago. You can imagine these great book guys, right? That they're they're sitting around thinking, well, what does Bradbury mean? What does Asimov mean? What does Heinlein mean? Because they're writing really provocative literature. And someone like Robert Block, who'll end up writing Psycho. Yeah, that's Psycho is a is a serious movie. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. It's really scary. It's terrifying, in fact, because you get to know the protagonist through the first half of the movie, and then suddenly they're killed, right? The main main woman is killed about halfway through the film. That's horrifying, you know, when you think about what's going on in a story. So here you have these guys at Chicago all basically arguing, what does science fiction mean? Is it really a legitimate genre? If we do accept it as a legitimate genre, does it really tell us about the foibles of society or does it tell us about the the progress of society? Those are really serious questions that those authors are asking. Yeah. And that collection that that these were published in was uh, the science fiction novel, Imagination and Social Criticism. And it is one of the, one of the, one of the notes I made to follow up on in this book, because it's, it's your, your distillation of that conversation is, is really incredible. And I, I really recommend getting that book. I found it through ABE Books. I was able to get a, a used copy, and I, I just devoured it when I got it. Yeah, no, that's some, a, some press I've never even heard of it. Advent Press. Yeah, sounds like it would be religious, but I don't think it was. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see, we'll I'll, we'll have to I'll have to look up and see if it was came out of Battle Creek because uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was Advent Press. Yeah, right, right. So there. Authors and works featured in this collection, and I'm thinking particularly of of, of Robert E. Howard, um, most famous for for Conan the Barbarian, and Stephen yeah. King, who sort of 
they're uneasy fits in this tradition of Christian humanism from sort of a moral perspective. How do you think that through their artistic contributions, how do they how do they contribute to this conversation in light of those sort of tensions? Yeah, I, I, I will admit, Dan, I was being a bit mischievous in putting them in. And I, I did that in Beyond Tenebrae, too. I put in Margaret Atwood as well as one of the great figures of the last hundred years. And I, and I enjoyed doing that. I like having figures that you wouldn't necessarily think of right offhand uh, in this kind of lineage of the greats. And, you know, I, I grew up on Stephen King. So, you know, for, as a kid, I read it. And I read The Stand, and I've read it, you know, a couple of times. And I, I, I've read his great story, Salem's Lot. I think that's a oh, beautiful yeah. novel, uh, absolutely beautiful novel. And it's writing; I think it's his finest writing overall. And of course, it's a rewrite of uh, of Stoker's Dracula, but put in Maine, right, mm-hmm. nineteen seventy five Maine. So it's it's just a great, a really imaginative way of thinking. And Stephen King is so rooted in place. In that, I feel like he's like Russell Kirk or Willa Cather. You know, Cather, we associate with Nebraska. Kirk, we associate with Michigan. But we always associate Stephen King with Maine. And there's just kind of a, a an element there of place that I find very important. Howard, I put in, partly because I had, so I, when I was on sabbatical, Dan McCarthy at Modern Age asked me to write a piece on Howard. And I mean, it was through mutual conversation. We were talking about this and I love the Conan stories. Uh, My son, Nathaniel, my oldest son and I, we talk Conan all the time. Uh, I I think Conan's a great figure in literature. And I think Howard is a really interesting character. And I got into, there are two volumes that have been published of Howard's letters with Lovecraft. And These guys are, they would not in any way fit 2023's political sensibilities. They they are both at times horrifying in some of their views, and they're very right-wing in a kind of scary sense uh, in some of their views that they had about civilization and peoples, ethnic groups, and so forth in the 1930s. But they're brilliant, too. And so I, reading not only Conan, which has a lot of social criticism in it, but then reading his letters as well, I became deeply fascinated by Howard. And so that piece is kind of the anti-Mythic Realms piece within Mythic Realms, because, of course, it starts with his suicide. Yes. And what I tried to do, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but I tried to look at his life from the perspective of a suicide. You know, why why end at age 30? What was going on there? And what did that mean about earlier on? And I, I don't, you know, this is not to this is not to put a judgment on, I mean, suicide is obviously wrong, but why someone would do that, yeah, the, the the reasons are myriad, and I'm sure they're just so complicated. You know, everything from a chemical imbalance to simply being depressed about the world. I mean, who knows why people do what they do? And I don't mean to judge the 20-year-old Howard by the 30-year-old Howard, but his suicide is obviously a very defining moment. And if you look at his literature in the 20s, his writing got better and better and better and better. And right on the eve of his death, he was contemplating writing the great Texas novel. He was wanting to write something that would probably be the equivalent of, say, Lonesome Dove today. Yeah. And I think he could have done it. 
And what, you know, what a terrible tragedy that he takes his own life at this kind of height of his life. Uh, and, it, you know, it has to do with his mother and all kinds of things. And there have been a number of biographies written about him, all, I think, very good. Uh, there are probably three or four biographies out there that are just excellent on him. But they all do try to wrestle with this question, why did Howard take his own life at the end? So I thought, well, if I'm going to write a piece about him, and this is kind of the central question, let's just ask it up front. And I never came up with an answer, but I, he's someone, despite him taking his own life, I admire deeply. And I think he had a lot of integrity. Yeah, there is... Um... That's that sort of streak of of sort of right wing nihilism that you find That's in a good Howard. Way of it. Yes, yeah. in, in Howard and and also in Lovecraft, is something that gets fictionalized in a film you you discuss. That I was so I was so moved by your description of it. I had never I had never seen Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, and I watched oh. it this past weekend, oh. and it's oh. it's amazing. Um. And it, it is gets, it gets at some of those same sort of themes and attitudes. And you explore a number of Hitchcock films in the book. What is it that Hitchcock does when, you know, he presents these extremely nihilistic characters in Rope? Right. But there is always right. a sort of moral core to Hitchcock, uh, oh, yeah. even in places where it's 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 sometimes it's sometimes less straightforward, like the birds. You get you get into sort of you know the birds is something that you return to again and again because right. um, there's the in, in uncovering new things every time yeah. uh, you come there. What is it? What is it about Hitchcock in that particularly uh, that particular way that he? employs the moral imagination to examine right. uh uh life in 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 all of its in all of its strangeness um yeah. and sometimes very bleak sort of nihilism yeah so you know in something like the birds obviously it's kind of a meditation on feminism in some way right the yeah. various types of not just one feminism but various types of feminism and what does it mean for womanhood and so forth in something like rope rope is so blatantly nietzschean that you know, it's hard to escape and and nietzschean both in the good and the bad sense right trying to figure out what is this kind of ubermensch what is reality what is morality are we beyond good and evil but hitchcock himself was raised catholic uh, roman catholic and i think it shows in his movies i i would say if you press me on this dan I would say that Hitchcock is to film to what Nathaniel Hawthorne is to literature. That is, they're, they're both reminding us of sin and guilt, and they do it in such a, a great way. So Jimmy Stewart in Rope, when he realizes that he's guilty of teaching these young men nihilism, and he realizes this is what nihilism really means— you can and part of this is just Jimmy Stewart's such a great actor. Oh, yeah. But you can you can see it in his face. His whole body collapses. All right, here's this here's this great figure who has been a hero to them. I'm sure he sees himself as somewhat of a hero because he's been teaching these young men all along. Part of this prep school. Now he has his own press. 
And all of this just collapses when he realizes this is what it's led to. And so this great questioning, you know, what's my life as a professor meant? What did I do? Did I do any good at all? And it seems to be the case that, no, you did no good at all. Your teaching led to murder and not just murder, but murder of a best friend. Yeah. And it's just and of course, there's there, there are weird kind of themes of homosexuality going on as well. All very subtle. Yeah. Very art. But, uh, you know, really uh, a lot of different things. And I, I can't remember the character's name right now, but the father who, you know, it, it basically at, at one moment in the dinner party says, you need to stop this. Yeah, this this is just blatantly wrong. And of course, he's the voice of the audience, you know, at that moment. And it, it's such a great moment in the film. Plus, just from a cinematographic standpoint, uh, a cinematographic standpoint, you look at something like Rope, which only had a couple of takes. You know, they basically filmed that whole movie in just three or four takes. That, you know, whatever they could fit in the film canister is what they did. And that that in and of itself, just from a movie technique, is astounding. Oh, the the visual is amazing. It's amazing. The, the vast majority of the film happens in a single apartment. And there are just three rooms that go, that lead one into the other into the other, which makes for some just fantastic artful shots. Um, Really incredible. There are are some folks in this collection, uh, you know, uh, artists, thinkers, that are very different and they're very self-conscious in their bringing this sort of Christian humanist sensibility to their work. Uh, People like the Inklings, uh, Mm -hmm. Tolkien, Lewis, um, these folks, how do they balance their intentionality? Which is, I mean, and you get into, there's a fabulous, let me, I want to make sure that I've got the, uh, the title. Uh, I think it's, I think it's in uh, Romance After Tolkien, or it might be in, in Who Are the Inklings? They're, they're back to back in the book. Right. You talk about how they, kind of had a self-conscious project to bring this sort of Christian humanism uh, to bear on fiction. How do they balance, though, that that sort of commitment to that project with sort of artistic integrity and vitality, where it's not, because they're very concerned, they don't want this to be mere sort of propaganda, and they're very self-conscious about that. How do they navigate that difficult difficult situation. Yeah, I think it's very hard for him, Dan. Uh, very hard. And they had disagreements themselves. Lewis and Tolkien had disagreements about how you actually project this. You know, so, so what can we say about the Inklings in particular? I mean, two things I think are very important. One, they're deeply Christian. And two, they're extremely respectful of Western civilization and paganism. And so they, but, but where do you go from there? You know, so you think about something like Narnia, where Aslan comes from the East, just as Christ and the Jews come from the East. But then you think about someone like Tolkien, where the gods all live in the West. And that's a much more pagan. And of course, in the Catholic Church, how do we try to get around that? From East to West, a perfect offering is made. right? And that's one of the reasons that that line was put in the Mass. It was a compromise between the Judaic and the pagan. 
trying to figure out where where does Jesus really fit in into all of this because they're expecting their gods are coming from from different directions. And so you see that even in Lewis and Tolkien as well. But I'm always reminded and I'm always inspired by this that when you look back at Tolkien's early letters, uh, especially in the the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, that's been readily, <clears throat> excuse me, that's been readily available since about 1981. All right, there's a, a great letter from World War One where Tolkien has lost one of his three best friends in the war, and they're trying to define what their group they call the TCBS, uh, the the. Bavarian Tea Company, what what they wanted this to be. Uh, As they're trying to define it, they've now lost one of their four members. And actually, at the time that Tolkien is writing, he doesn't know, but a a second member will be killed in World War I as well. And so only two are left. And Tolkien makes this amazing claim that no matter how many are left, the duty of this group is to make real in the world beauty again and to do God's will. So from the very beginning, even though Lewis is a convert, Tolkien, of course, well, Tolkien's a convert too, but he's 12 when he converts. So you know, Tolkien is deeply, from a, as a young man, he's deeply concerned with this project. How do you mesh the Christian and the human? How do you make a Christian humanism without it being propaganda? And I, I would say overall, that the Lord of the Rings is a very good compromise. I mean, that that's weird to use that word with Lord of yeah. the Rings because there's nothing that's really a compromise about it. But in the sense of trying to figure out what's pagan and what's Christian within that story, uh, I think Tolkien does a beautiful job of meshing those two things. So there, there's no overt Christianity in the story. But when you realize that the ring sets out on Christmas Day and the ring is destroyed on the Feast of the Annunciation. I mean, that I, that can't just be coincidental in what Tolkien is doing. And yet it's subtle. It's not complete. Yeah, you'd have to read the appendices to know that. Uh, it's not just knocking you over the head. Whereas I think with Lewis, if you read Narnia and you don't get that Aslan is Jesus, you fundamentally misread the seven novels. Uh, it's so clear that Aslan is Jesus. And, and of course, Tolkien and Lewis had differences over Narnia. Lewis loved it. He was the author. Tolkien had mixed feelings about Narnia and thought it was the, uh, kind of a poor hodgepodge of mythology. Didn't really do things. I, I actually love Narnia. I think it's great. But I can see Tolkien, who doesn't want any propaganda. And by the way, his his story, his short story that he wrote in about three and a half hours, Leaf by Niggle, one of the most perfect short stories ever written, Beautiful. deals with this issue of propaganda as well. You know, what, what is real art versus what is, a, a say, a poster? Um, so you see that theme in Tolkien. Lewis, in his essays, deals with the question of propaganda, and in his speech to Cambridge that he gives in 1954, uh, his great speech on the meaning of time, he talks about government as essentially a propaganda agency. Um, It's very funny, and Lewis does it in a humorous way, but there's no doubt that Narnia has a propagandistic element to it. There's an interesting contrast when when I was reading these essays in the book is on the one hand, Lewis is sort of the dominant personality of the group. Oh, yeah. He is sort of the catalyst 
in a lot of ways in terms of in terms of personal networks, in terms of um, all of the sort of the sort of you know uh, energy and self consciousness of 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 the yeah. group as a group. But what's very interesting, which I I never realized until reading your essays, is that the Inklings sort of faded away after the last reading Tolkien gave from the Lord of the Rings. And that, Isn't that this, amazing? this had been the consistent work that had brought the group together and that the group had yeah. discussed. Um, and, yeah. and sort of, you know, uh, while, while Tolkien might not have had the force of personality in the group, his, his artistic contribution to the group, I think, you know, in, 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 con in its role in bringing together the group in discussion, and its role in, in holding together the group until the very end, and then and then it dissolves was was fascinating to me. Thanks, Dan. I, I thought that was an interesting insight as well. And you know, so many people who've written on the Inklings have always emphasized Lewis's personality, and I and I buy that. Obviously, this guy had an amazing, very charismatic personality, but I always thought that there had to be something more to it as well. Right? It couldn't just be force of personality. The Inklings met from 1931 until 1949. Yeah, you know, that and they often met twice a week during that time. That's hundreds of meetings that they would have been with each other. So, you know, I I think it's tragic that they ended when they ended, but that was a good run for anyone. Yeah. No, that is that is amazing. I want to turn now to the biographical section. At the okay. Of the sure. Book, which I think I think you know I've 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 written a review yet to be published, but that will be published by the Thanks, time Dan. by the time uh, uh, this podcast is released. Um, that sees that as sort of the hermeneutical key to the whole piece, and I'm I and now that now that now that I'm I'm here with the author himself. <laughs> why? Why? Wh how did you envision that autobiographical? segment, which you, which you front load right after the introduction are a series of autobiographical reflections. Right. And they touch on many of these figures and their influence in your own life, particularly Bradbury, in particular Tolkien. Yeah. Why, why include those pieces in this work and, and, and why put them at the beginning to sort of orient the reader? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I have a great answer for you, Dan. I'm, a large part of it was I wanted to honor Bradbury and Tolkien because they, from as far back as I can remember, they've been a part of my life. But I also think that just books in general, libraries in general, have just shaped me and who I am. And so here I am, 55, and you know, I don't want it. I don't want it to be so autobiographical that it's just self-absorption. But I, I wanted to kind of at least go through what it was like growing up in the '70s and the '80s, and and put that there. And and I wanted to. You know, it's one reason that I start with my life and I end with Stranger Things. Not quite end, but I have Stranger Things at the other yeah. end because that that was a that's a series that has re. It, it got me very interested in my own life again, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, because of the nostalgia involved with it. But but my number one reason, Dan, for doing that was to honor my mother uh, because she was such and, and is. I mean, she's yeah wonderful, but she's been such a huge influence on me. And the fact that from the earliest moments I can remember, she's handing me books. I just I think it was critical for forming me 
in particular. So, yeah, I, I grew up and I, I was maybe more open about this than I should be. I grew up in a pretty troubled household, but books and libraries were always my safe haven, always. And that escape, you know, whether it was reading Bradbury or in seventh grade playing Dungeons and Dragons or in high school being on the high school debate team, the, these were all ways that I could have a healthy life despite the hell at home. Yeah. Well, it is, it is a beautiful tribute to your mother and oh, thanks, I think, Dan. I think serves well to orient the readers to as a model for sort of how the imagination should ideally fit into all of our lives. Um, and you know, it caused me to think back on, on my own history with books and my nice. own sort of passions and, and where those have led me and how they've shaped how I have viewed everything since and how that's been really formative. So I think, I think it's a great model for readers. Yeah. When I think of you, Dan, I think of books too. So that doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. So, I think some of our earliest conversations were about authors. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, now the closing section of the book, and I'm, I'm glad you brought in Str Stranger Things because that is, that is, that is the one bookend, but there's also another bookend that takes us, you know, if we, if we, if we take those as the bookends, excluding the introduction and the very final conclusion, those are fitting bookends. But in the introduction, you begin with images and arts and letters. And in the end, you come to a section on faith. And it's a very, it's a genuinely moving section. And it brings those great questions of faith into dialogue with the moral imagination. Um, that this is um, not only a, a compelling lens to bring to how we view art literature, film, but also these deep and abiding sort of questions about God, man, these things that, you know, uh, the best of our, 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 our books and film explore, um, but it, it, it sort of doubles back and, and goes, f you know, from using those tools to investigate literature and film to then using those tools to reflect on a life of faith. How does the moral imagination help readers find consolation in this life and, and hope in the next? And that's a very big and shaggy baggy question. <laughs> that's realize. a huge question, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> huge. So that, that piece that I wrote at the end was really inspired by T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. There, there's a moment in Ash Wednesday where there's a woman with leopards and she's contemplating the virgin. And there's a great moment when T.S. Eliot was in America and he was at Paul Elmer Moore's house, Paul Elmer Moore, a great Princeton classicist, amazing figure that we've almost all forgotten. But he's at Elmer Moore's house and he does a public reading of Ash Wednesday. And a student asks, yeah, Mr. Elliot, what do you mean by a woman under a tree with these leopards? And he says, isn't it enough that she contemplates the virgin? That, that's Elliot's answer. 
And I, I love that image because if you think about Western civilization and even beyond Western civilization, you know, whether it, it's Socrates in the Crito, where he has that dream about the woman in white who appears to him and says, in three days, you'll be in the land of Pythia. Or you look at the Lakota Indians who believe that the first two Lakotas were walking in the Great Plains and they encountered the white buffalo woman, that is the buffalo woman in glowing white robes who appeared to them and gave them their law, or King Arthur and the Lady of the Lake, or the Virgin Mary. Uh, there, there's so many powerful images in Western civilization of this woman who comes and bestows goodness or truth or beauty upon these characters. And I think the fact that we find it in the pagan Greeks and we find it among the Christian Celts and we find it among the Sioux, I just, that's mind boggling to me that you would have this kind of common image. And, you know, this is probably something Carl Jung would have had all kinds of theories about why we have these common archetypes and so forth. But uh, I find that fascinating. And growing up Catholic, and certainly in a family that took Mary very seriously, uh, I, even when I've, I've struggled, I, mean, I I have a Nietzschean strain as well, Dan. Yeah. And so I too have struggled with faith. It's not always the easiest thing for me. I want to believe, but a lot of times it's hard to believe. I think it's very hard uh, to believe in certain things. And yet it's always that kind of image of my mom or my grandmother or my aunts or my great aunts and their devotion to the mother of God that has shaped me dramatically and has kept my faith for so long uh, that has allowed me to come back, even in my skepticism, you know, and, and whatever it might be. I always think about that, that, I mean, Mary is very real. And of course, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we're, we're we go through sanctification or Christification, we're never going to be Christ in this world, but we can at least, at least kind of imitate Mary and do what we can to imitate Mary and call on that image. So I, I think it is, I mean, I agree with Jung that it is a very archetypal image, but I think there's something more to it going on. So what I wanted to do with that last chapter was exactly what you said, Dan. I, I was trying to try and meld, well, here's some kind of reality and here's the mythology. How do we blend them? That is, how do you take the Christian and the humane and make them into one. And it's obviously a very autobiographical statement as well. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a wonderful way to end a really wonderful collection. Thanks, Dan. That means a great deal, especially coming from you. Oh, no, I, it was, I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a very, it's also a very attractive book. Um, they did a good job on the cover. Did a very yeah. nice job on the cover. Um, yeah. We'll have, we'll have links to where you can get the book in the show notes um, along with uh with uh, some other uh, rabbit trails that you can go down. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for being oh, with us. Thank you, Dan. It's oh, I love, I love you. I love acting. This is great, great combination of things. So thank you. Oh, thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer 
at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.